Hi, good morning and uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Siva Raghupati. I lead the Big Data Solutions Architecture team for Americas that comprises of database analytics and AI services. Uh, welcome to my session. Uh, there's also a repeat session a little bit later today if some of your friends are not able to get in. Uh, it's in a bigger room below. Um, so uh, just a little bit of background about myself. I've been with uh, Amazon Web Services for the last eight and a half years. For the first two and a half years, I helped build a couple of services, Amazon DynamoDB, which is a NoSQL database service, and, and later on Amazon RDS, which is a relational database service. For the last six years, I've been working with customers around the world, including Amazon.com, and helping them architect big data solutions on AWS. So this presentation is a culmination of my experiences, uh, so to say, so, some interesting mind map pictures along the way. You may love it or hate it, but uh, it's very colorful. Um, so uh, welcome to the session. Let's get started. Um, now, in terms of what to expect, I'm going to go through some of the big data challenges customers are facing, um, some of the architectural principles uh, that I came up with, uh, six architectural principles that always have governed my you know, decisions and help guide customers. I think that's probably the most crucial part of the presentation. I think if you take away those six points, chances are you're building a great application, big data application. So I'm going to actually simplify the big data processing by baking that into multiple stages collect, store, process, and consume. And in each stage, we're going to go through and pick up what options. I'm going to outline some of the services that are there and then give you some parameters such as to how to pick up the right, right service or the tool in each stage. And, um, and, then and one of the things is, uh, as, as a person building services, uh, I have a unique exposure to how we build services at AWS. So I'm going to address some of the why questions in the presentations. I feel like as a decision maker, whether you're an architect um, or a business person making a decision, uh, to understand why you know, kind of gives you the power. The rest of it flows through you know, how naturally follows from why, et cetera. So I'm going to address some of those. Um, and towards the end, I'm going to give you three architectural patterns um, and um, design patterns, if you will, and a reference architecture, a pretty colorful reference architecture, as you would see. Um, so one thing I'm not going to have in this presentation is a lot of demos. Um, I'm going to use the entire hour, most likely, and I'm going to hang out here, and I can have lunch with you if you have time after. Um, and I can you know, feel free to you know, raise any questions. Uh, chances are I have a lot of content. I'm going to run right into the end of the hour. Uh, so I'm happy to take on any number of questions that you have this afternoon. Uh, I'm also not going to have any code. I feel like you should get your architecture right before you write code. Uh, so this is an architecture session, which means I'm not going to have any demos. Uh, ben is doing a talk right after this. Uh, he's going to show you a cool demo. Um, it is serverless big data um, uh, you know, presentation. So I think I'm going to focus on the architecture here. And um, now let's get started with that. Uh, my hope is to give you a compass. Um, I was thinking about you know, what are the two things that I can give you as takeaways. I felt like, OK, I'm going to give you a compass as to how to navigate the space, and I'm give you, going to give you a few maps. You know, those are design patterns and a reference architecture. I'm going to call them maps. So those are the two takeaways you know, that I hope to you know, come out you know, through this that, that'll come out through this presentation. So, um, so the volume, velocity, and variety of big data is ever increasing. You know, about 10 years ago, somebody building an application that does you know, 150 terabytes of data in just per day or about 150,000 or 200,000 requests per second is pretty rare. But nowadays, customers are routinely building these applications, oftentimes you know, with one or two developers over a span of a few days or weeks. If you use the right managed services, you can easily accomplish that. 
in addition to you know, file data um, or text, if you will, uh, the video and audio are becoming first-class interfaces. You know, we all start, we are, we are all started to talk to our phones and, you know, eco devices, etc. So your big data applications will not only be data or text-driven, would also potentially be voice-driven and conversation-driven. You know, how do you leverage the right services to be able to actually build those things in, into, into your into your big data pipeline? Is something that we'll address. Um, and then, in terms of the evolution. Big data systems are evolving from batch processing systems. So, you know, typically you ran your Hive batch application or your data warehouse batch application. You ran a report every week or every month. You know, from then on, you know, that was that used to be the case uh, many years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. And then this moved on to stream processing rather than if you're doing click streams, you know, rather than writing the entire click stream in a file and then copying it to HDFS or S3 and doing processing you may want to actually put that data in Kinesis or Kafka and do real-time stream processing on top of that. Um, so that's, um, you know, so that, therefore you, you can have answers really fast. In addition to these two, you know, we're adding actually intelligence into these applications. It feels like putting a brain you know, on top of the little Lego my son created for me that I took a picture of a few years ago. I passionately used that during this talk. Um, so it almost seems like we need to take our big data pipelines and then prediction enable them. In other words, you need to be able to do batch predictions and real-time predictions on top of your fast-moving data or slow-moving data. Um, and you know, for the last eight and a half years, I've seen AWS database services evolve from virtual machines to managed services to serverless. You know, what that means to me is, you know, in the case of the virtual world, you pretty much created an EC2 instance and you installed your database software or a, or a big data software and then you stitched on EBS volumes onto that or you used the local disks and you kind of installed your, you know, your software and did that. Instead of that, we created managed services such as RDS where you simply say, I want a database. By the way, I need so much of memory and so much of disk and then go ahead and create the database for me. We have a control plane under the covers that basically stitches the EBS you know, volumes and instances and does raids, raid across, you know, raids the data across multiple EBS volumes if need be, and then assembles this for you. And then, then we're off to serverless. In, in my mind, you know, DynamoDB could be serverless in the sense that even though there are servers behind that are finally optimized for NoSQL scenarios, you simply specify what you want. In the case of a DynamoDB, you say, here is a table, uh, here is the primary key for the table. By the way, I'm going to do a million reads per second and uh, two million writes per second into this table. Once you specify that in terms of a simple API, you know, create table API, we under the covers basically provision, partition the table across thousands of nodes and make that available for you, right? And then, no, that gives you a lot of leverage, right? Now, in, 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 instead of worrying about servers and software, you simply worry about your programming abstractions. You need a table, you have these keys, and uh, you, know, you need to be able to stitch all of this into your big data pipeline. So we'll basically, I'll, I'll, whenever in each stage I highlight a service, I'm gonna call it serverless or managed service, et cetera. So, um, so it's pretty important to be able to use all of them. Um, and uh, we'll see how. I mean, this is, uh, and I used to call the zoo of technologies. Uh, so this is one of the, this is an opportunity and a challenge. You know, on the left side, um, there's a plethora of tools basically to do these functions. One of the challenges is really picking which one to use. Um, on the left side is the open source or the Hadoop ecosystems that churns out an amazing array of technologies. On the right side is AWS services. Anytime I come to reInvent, I'm, you know, we'll likely announce a whole bunch of new services. 
and I'm not going to be able to put that in the slide next year, probably. So, um, you know, I splattered this slide with a whole bunch of AI technologies such as, you know, MXNet, TensorFlow, you know, Keras, Theano, et cetera. The question to me as I was writing the slide was, how do I fit all of that into my big data architecture? I'm going to try to do that towards the, you know, course of the presentation. So, um, now with that, uh, the big data challenges are like this. You know, is there a reference architecture? What tool should I use? How and why is... And more importantly, these days, AI, how do I AI enable my big data application? Uh, you know, if you went to a big data conference, maybe three years ago, it was, you know, Spark was the answer no matter what the question is. These days, it's AI is the answer no matter what the question is. So we're all struggling to figure out, like, how do you enable AI to your applications, right? That's what I see across our customer base. And uh, if you're getting started, you're not new, you know, join the party. I think we can get going really fast. Um, so uh, these are the architectural principles. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into this. The more and more I build big data applications, the more and more it looks like a sort of a pipeline, right? And a couple of things repeats itself, right? There's a, there's a flow uh, where the data gets stored and processed. You know, oftentimes people try to put that together. The best practice there is to actually decouple storage from compute. Uh, what that allows you to do is if you're processing, if you get a new processing technology, we didn't have Spark 10 years ago. When Spark, Spark came on, took over processing technology, we basically replaced Hive with Spark. If you nicely decouple your processing stage from storage, you can simply you know, go ahead and replace uh, a newer technology instead of the old and get going. So it's pretty, pretty important to, to basically decouple your pipeline. So your pipeline should ideally look like store process, store process sort of repeating itself. Um, and then using the right tool for the job is paramount at AWS. So whenever we build, as a builder, when I was building DynamoDB or RDS, we typically tend to build these tools to do, perform a few functions extremely well. Um, anytime you don't use that, you don't match your application characteristics to that of the application, what happens is say that the application doesn't work fairly well or your cost goes out of whack. I'm going to actually illustrate the cost piece you know, through an example a little bit later in the presentation. So what are the defining characteristics of various applications? You know, if you're doing stream storage subsystem, what are the defining characteristics that you should look for? If you're looking for analytics applications, what are the defining characteristics that you should look for? It's something that I have characterized this. So the key point there is you should be using the right tool for the job. One size does not fit all, at least at AWS, from what I have seen. Um, and leveraging managed services or serverless services is key. You know, instead of you getting an EC2 instance, installing software, managing it, and so on, this feels pretty cool for the first six months or so. After that, it gets pretty darn boring if you, when, once you rev your application and ship versions. Simply using a managed service you know, takes the muck off of your you know, engineers and lets us deal with that. And then so you can actually quickly build your applications, ship those applications, and, and give value to your customers. Uh, you also you know, spend a lot, you know, along with it comes availability, scalability, et cetera. Um, using log-centric design patterns is key. I think this is one of the very important and interesting points uh, here because if you're familiar with databases, transaction logs have been around for a long time. In other words, even if your database gets corrupted, you can always build the state of a database through a transaction log. You basically take you know, an empty database, start applying your transaction log, and build the database. The key point there is that if you are able to keep all the data that comes into your company you know, think of that as a transaction log and persist that as is without chopping off any of those, you know, legs and hands, then you may be able to construct 
the state of your data at any given point in time. This, this becomes even more important with AI and machine learning because in many cases, we don't know what questions the business folks would ask going forward. And in order to predict some future behavior, you need to have enough data to be able to build the model and materialize the model. If you don't have the data, then you have to start building the data set you know, after you have the problem. So you know, as an AI architect or a data architect, it's probably pretty important to actually keep the data. Now, since things like storage with S3 is so cheap, you know, three or two cents per gigabyte per month, you can pretty nicely compress the data and keep all the data without much cost. Then when you go to build a, you know, build a model, you can pretty much use that. So I'm going to reemphasize that, you know, building immutable, keeping all the logs, you know, don't delete anything would be another simple way of saying that, you know, if at all possible, right? Uh, and then materializing the view. So you should think of your various services, you know, Elasticsearch or Data Warehouse, as simply a view on top of the immutable data that you will put in your data lake, if you will. So that's the essential idea there. Um, you know, things like bitcoins, et cetera, work off of a general ledger, and it's, it's a fancy word for a, a log, a big log that has all the changes that goes forward, right? You know, general ledgers have been around in accounting for a long time. Transaction logs have been in databases for a long time. This is the same idea that repeats itself. Um, being cost conscious, often you're going to make the right decision at AWS. Contrary to, you know, expensive things should be more cool and more better. Here, the cheapest thing is likely the best service to use. If you have two options, you know, pick A or B service, chances are the cheaper service is going to be the right fit because we have priced that to do that function extremely cheap and extremely well. That is contrary to the, you know, general thinking that expensive things are better. Um, and last but not the least, I added the bullet for this year. Uh, always thinking from the, you know, end first, you will at some point AI enable your system. You might as well start thinking now, you know, if I were to AI enable this big data pipeline, how, what should I collect or how should it look like? How would it look like, right? Uh, so that is something um, that is pretty important. I think this is probably the most important slide. And, uh, you know, if you practice these concepts, chances are you're going to get your design right. So I just want to reemphasize that. So now with that in place, uh, let's go ahead and simplify big data processing. So the more and more I think of big data processing, I was a mechanical engineer before in life, so big pipes, you know, it's pretty cool for me. Um, the data goes in on one side, answers come in on the other side. That's the essence of any big data processing, not any, any more complicated than that. And, and in between, there's potentially multiple stages. They look like something like this, collect, store, process, or analyze, and consume. And typically what also happens is the store process, store process repeats itself you know, to shape the data in a form that the downstream application can consume pretty rapidly. So, and uh, what governs that is what I call as the pipeline latency, which is how long you have to answer. You know, you may have to answer, you know, in milliseconds, then what goes in between is going to be dictated by what's your time to answer. You may have week to answer, then you could basically use a few other components. Um, or throughput, right, which is the amount of data, you know, gigabytes or megabytes or terabytes or petabytes flowing per second, right, or processed per second. And then the cost. Those are very simple principles, right? And in a way, if you take away all the other stuff, fancy stuff, and the essence, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to ask the question, Mr. Customer, you know, how fast do you want the data to be materialized? What is the view? You know, are you going to look at this in the form of, uh, you know, what is the pretty picture or, or a report that you want? So let me shape the data in the form that you'll get the report rather rapidly. And then, by the way, what is going to be the bill for this application? You know, how much are you willing to pay? Usually tracking your design across those parameters, 
you know, have always helped me you know, guide customers to use the right solution. Um, along the way, this is like the concept map. I'm going to introduce this idea of the temperature of your data. Anytime I'm building a system, I often think about, am I dealing with hot data, warm data, or cold data, right? Uh, typically, hot data is smaller pieces of data. You can think of that data in like cache or, or your RAM, random access memory, it, to be hot data. Typically, it tends to be fairly small. Item sizes tend to be small. You know, you're basically doing a very frequent access of the data. Pretty much, you know, the, the number of IOPS per gigabyte, if you want to technically think about that, is pretty intense. Heat, right? IOPS per gigabyte. Uh, towards the colder side, what happens is the data tends to be pretty large, you know, big files. In some cases, you don't care whether you want to access this in seconds or milliseconds. If the data shows up in a few hours, it's fine. You know, for example, if you put data set in Glacier, you know, the lowest tiered uh, Glacier, you know, the data comes back in three and a half or four hours. It's fine, you know, because you're just simply pulling out some data set that was archived, um, and then you can wait for that long. So having a sense of whether you're dealing with hot data, warm data, and cold data often allows you to pick the right tool. So I just want to introduce the concept here. Um, now, uh, let's go into the collection stage with that. Um, in the collection stages, you know, you're going to have applications that are using ODBC, JDBC interfaces, writing to databases, um, or um, you may have a data center that's connected using Direct Connect. I'm going to use a lot of small icons. The slides would be available for you, uh, both in terms of SlideShare as well as YouTube, so you can look at it. Don't, you know, don't squint your eyes. I walked around the room yesterday. It was pretty, pretty small for folks in the last row to look at this, but don't worry about this. You'll get the slides. Um, the key concepts are in bold letters, so you should be able to follow that. Um, you know, data structures and database records, typically, you know, I call this transactional data. And file data, right? You're basically, you have a, let's say if you have a clickstream analytics system, you, in the application tier, you're writing files, and then you're actually moving, use Apache Flume or something else to actually move the files onto HDFS or S3. You're moving either the file data. Uh, in some cases, this could be video clips or audio recordings as well. Um, our streaming data. Streaming data is typically generated by devices and sensors. Uh, it is essentially time series data. You know, some instrument is measuring rapidly, you know, temperature or pressure or something else, and then it's actually sending that stream onto the IoT platform, which is actually eventually sending it to AWS, or actually, you know, sending it, if they're connected devices, they're sending it as is. You know, basically, these are the three types of data you'll be dealing with. Now, what is the storage type that you should use for these three types of data? Typically, transactional data goes into in-memory databases, uh, SQL or NoSQL. File data goes into file or object stores, such as HDFS or S3. And events go into some kind of a stream storage. Um, and I'm going to focus on, zoom in on stream storage right now. Um, so typical stream storage subsystem that are prevalently used by our customers are Apache Kafka. Uh, it's a high-throughput distributed streaming platform uh, for, for managing streaming data. It has all kinds of control. We'll actually you know, look at various attributes of Kafka compared to others. Uh, Amazon Kinesis Streams is a fully managed service for storing streaming data on AWS. Uh, we also have introduced Amazon Kinesis Firehose, uh, which is built on top of Amazon Kinesis, which not only collects the data, but it actually transports the data to an ENS data store. You know, for example, if you write data to streaming data to Amazon Kinesis Firehose, it'll actually transport the data to S3 or to Redshift or to Elasticsearch, which is pre-built. You specify the destination, you specify how frequently or how big a buffer that needs to get before you push the data there. It automatically does that for you. Um, and then 
Let's look at why stream storage. You know, it basically decouples producers from the consumers. It provides a persistent buffer. It allows you to collect multiple streams of the data. In other words, multiple producers have given, you know, the red, green, and violet producers, et cetera, on the left side, and then they're writing to um, a stream. Uh, it could be either a Kinesis stream or a Kafka stream. I've also highlighted DynamoDB streams here, which you could potentially use in, for some cases, but it's a minority case. You know, uh, we'll have a discussion about that if you want offline. Um, essentially, what happens is when you write, when the producers write to it, the stream nicely decouples this from a consuming application. Therefore, the consuming application and the producers can go at their own speed. Um, it also allows you to preserve client ordering, which is a defining characteristic of a stream. So in other words, if the red producer is going to say, I am red, in other words, key equals red, and it's going to write packets one, two, and three, what the, what the kinesis of the Kafka you know, partition of the stream will ensure that all of those red packets will always go to the you know, shard one or the partition one. Therefore, a downstream application, um, you know, like a consumer one and consumer two that are parallelly consuming that, can actually assume that the red packets are always going to be in a, in a partition one or a stream one. Therefore, it can do computations such as give me the max, min, average, et cetera. There's one downside of that. If you say key equals one, if your put rate in producer one is going to be more than what a, what a, what a single shard can handle, you will get into some scenarios. If you, if you get that, then the only option there is to not actually do that and then run a downstream application to do the, to do the sorting, if you will, right? Um, so that's the essential character. We also, you know, this is also called this, the fancy name for this is streaming MapReduce, right? Which in other words, you write it, it the MapReduce is already being done by the underlying framework the moment you've specified key equals red or key equals blue, et cetera. Um, now, oftentimes I get asked by customers, like, what about this Amazon SQS? Should I, what should I use this for? Well, it also does decoupling persistent puffers, and it also allows you to, you know, collect multiple streams. What it doesn't have, there's no client ordering, at least in the standard queue. Um, there's no streaming map reduce. In other words, there's no notion of you know, separating those packets out into various partitions pertaining to a single producer. And there's no parallel consumption. In other words, if one client consumes that payload, there's a thing called visibility timeout, then that payload is not available for the rest of the folks to consume. So as long as you, know, you, you don't care for those, using that is okay. But if you care for those functionality of multiple producers consuming that, then this is not the right use case. We also introduced, um, you know, FIFO queues recently. Uh, the FIFO queues, um, I'll compare and contrast that in a moment. Uh, FIFO queues allow, you know, preserving client ordering. And there's also a workaround some customers have used. In other words, you know, you can write to a SNS topic, and then you can have either a Lambda function or the queue subscribed to that. Those are the edge cases, right? So, you know, just in case you're actually doing a design of your system and you want to actually consider that, I just wanted to actually put that in the slide. Chances are using Kinesis or Kafka is going to be ideal for the reasons I will point out in, the, in a momentarily. Um, I wanted to include that there just as a reference. Uh, here is the various attributes. Now, this is a very busy slide. Uh, it's impossible to read this probably from here, but I'm going to step through this. And on the left column, um, you know, I have given various attributes such as, is this a managed service? You know, is there guaranteed ordering? Um, is there delivery? You know, what about deduping? Uh, what kind of a delivery mechanism does it allow? It allow it, is it at least once processing? If I write a packet, will the packet be available to consumer at least once, at most once, or exactly once? What is the semantic there? What is the retention period? If you write it to, you know, SQS or Kinesis, how long 
Do these systems maintain those packets, if you will? What is the availability characteristic of this you know, scale and throughput? For example, if I take Amazon Kinesis, it's a fully managed service. It, it guarantees ordering. There's only an at least one semantic. You know, in the edge cases, Kinesis will have two records for the same put that you did. In other words, if you're building a billing system, if you don't want to double bill your customer, you should be deduping those records using something like DynamoDB if you want you know, at most one's processing. That is not automatically built into this. Um, apparently in Kafka, that is automatically built in if you use the right client, if you use transactions, et cetera. So uh, if you compare and contrast, um, anytime you go to customers, they usually tell me, like, don't give me a menu. Can you pick one for me because I'm having a headache? Um, so if you want me to pick one for you, I would pick actually Amazon Kinesis is the best place to start because it's a fully managed service um, and it's probably the cheapest if you price that, uh, if you include admin in that. But Kafka gives you sort of infinite control. As you can just see there, it gives you at least once processing, exactly once processing, or at most once processing. You know, the retention period is configurable, whereas in the case of Kinesis, it's seven days. If you don't take the data out in seven days, it goes away, um, and so on, right? Um, so I think I just, this is the, often customers go through this paradigm, so I just wanted to document this in a slide that you can basically, you know, look at this as a reference. And uh, if you compare this with uh, SQS, you know, if you, if you take SQS FIFO queues, you can only do 300 TPS into FIFO queues. That's the last time I looked at it. I'm not sure if the team updated those numbers. We tend to increase these numbers over a period of time. The last time I looked at it, it's about 300 TPS. If you're doing more than 300 TPS, FIFO queues may not be the solution for you. So I just wanted to highlight that piece as well. Um, and uh, instead, you should be thinking of using Kinesis, or if you don't have guaranteed ordering need, you should use standard SQS. Um, at the bottom, I have called this hot versus the, the bar. So if you're dealing with colder data sets, typically you know, putting it in SQS makes a lot of sense. In general, if you're dealing with streaming data, you're dealing with hot data sets. And all of these services are able to nicely handle hot data sets. Uh, file in the object store. Uh, what type of file store or the object store should you use? Um, you know, S3 is, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a managed object service for building. You know, basically, we call this the storage for the internet. You can put any amount of data, any number of files um, into S3, and um, it is perhaps the best place to put your file data. Uh, so I think the biggest recommendation here is if you have file data, you should absolutely put that in S3 before you consider something else. There needs to be a good reason why not to do that, right? Uh, that's the essence of this. Why? It's natively supported by pretty much every single um, you know, big data framework. You know, I go to some of these big data conferences. The, you know, the, the person presenting a big data framework simply starts off saying, assuming that the, the data is in S3. They don't even tell you what S3 is. So that's how popular and prevalent this is, right? Um, so it's natively supported by many frameworks. The other piece is it nicely allows you to decouple storage from compute. What that means is that if you put your data in HDFS, you need to have these machines humming and running for your file system to be available. Whereas in this case, you don't have to do that. You simply can shut down the, you know, do your processing, write the results, read the data from S3, process the results, process the data, write the results back to S3, and simply shut down the cluster. So you can use things like spot instances. You can also fine tune. If you have a memory intensive workloads, you can use memory, you know, based instances. You know, for example, EC2 has, you know, compute uh, intense, no, you know, data type, EC2 instances, memory, memory based EC2 instances, you know, and uh, CPU optimized EC2 instances. So you can pretty much match your workload towards the characteristics, you know, um, of, the, of the instance and pick the right tool rather than worrying about actually this 
instance providing storage as well, in which case you have to pick instances with the, with the bigger disks, local disks, if you will. Um, and then, so, um, you know, S3 is also designed for 11.9's durability, and, um, and you, need, you don't need to pay for data replication. S3 keeps multiple copies of the data within the same region. In fact, you don't even know about that. Um, and then it automatically, whereas in the case of HDFS, you know, you pay for data replication. If you want to do a three-way replication, you want to have uh, big disks for that. In the case of S3, the price includes actually we keeping multiple copies of the data and multiple data centers within the same region. You do pay a price for replicating the data across regions, uh, but not within the same region. Um, also, it, 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 you can do server-side encryption. You can also, with KMS keys, uh, with keys managed by AWS or, you know, um, for example, you can also do you know, SSL, et cetera. It's, it's fairly low cost. Um, and oftentimes the question asked is, what about HDFS? When do I use this for? More and more, HDFS is used as somewhat of an intermediate, like a cache, if you will, for your hardest data sets. You, know, you store the persistent data in S3, you read a copy of that, and you do the processing. You write an intermediate copy in HDFS, and you go ahead and, in some cases, that data is read multiple times. So use that as essentially a cache, but not necessarily a persistent store. Um, you know, S3 also has various tiers. S3 has S3 standard, S3 standard, infrequent access, and Amazon Glacier. Um, and then there's S3 Analytics, which is a service which allows you to basically, it runs analysis on your S3 bucket and tells you what storage class to use for what, what data sets. Um, so that is how you should think of your tiered data. As your data ages, you should actually be moving those you know, data to Glacier, if you will, from S3. If you're not using this, and if you are in, very infrequently use this, go ahead and put that in S3 infrequent access. Um, now, what about caches and databases, right? Um, Amazon Elastic Cache is a managed service uh, that uses mem that can support memcache or Redis engine engine under the covers. We also introduced DynamoDB Accelerator, which is an in-memory cache for data in DynamoDB. So if you actually write a DynamoDB application and point to, to a DAX endpoint, DynamoDB Accelerator endpoint, you know, when you do a write to it, it does write through cache to Dynamo. When you do reads from it, you don't need to, need to even change the application. You simply switch the endpoint to this. Um, you know, why am I talking about databases in a big data application? Chances are if you have velocity of the data, you know, high velocity, millions of writes per second, you need to literally put that in DynamoDB, probably the best store for you to put that uh, in terms of the managed service available on AWS, right? And in some cases, let's say I was working with a customer uh, in the advertising realm, they do serve ads. In them, for them, DAX was very important because, you know, for example, for ad lookups and so on, you know, they put their persistent data, you know, user profiles is a big table if you're in, in advertising business, the user profile, you know, gets accessed millions of times per second. It's a fairly read-intensive workload. Having a cache in front of that actually, you know, saves you a lot of money. So using something like DynamoDB Accelerator is pretty important in that scenario. Uh, RDS, which is a relational database service, it has multiple engines, starting with Amazon Aurora, um, you know, MySQL, Postgres, et cetera, um, including you know, Oracle and uh, SQL Server. Um, so uh, this is an anti-pattern. Uh, if you're building a big data application, if you're using a database, you should probably not do this. Um, you know, it's reason because if you're doing millions of writes per second, you pretty much have to shard your data across multiple instances, and sharding can be a pain. Um, and also, in the case of Dynamo, you can write a million writes per second and do 10 reads per second, and you can simply specify that and we'll charge you for that. In the case of the database, you get both. 
you know, if you, if you supersize it for writes, you also get supersized automatically for reads. You know, you don't save any money by doing that, right? So both financially as well as technically, typically it's a bad choice. Instead, what should you do, right? Well, your database tier should look something like this in memory, you know, SQL, NoSQL, search, and graph, for example. Uh, when I put a slide like this, the immediate next question from customers is, well, how do you keep all these, these things in sync? You know, here's an idea. You know, for example, in this case, it's an application doing NoSQL to DynamoDB. DynamoDB has update streams. Uh, I simply hooked up a Lambda function that will actually look for all those changes and take those changes and apply that in Elasticsearch as well as Elastic Cache, right? So if you have a leaderboard, for example, if, you're, if, you, if there is a gameplay involved in your application, you're writing all the gameplay into a NoSQL store and you are updating, you know, you, you have an update stream in the case of DynamoDB, you're gonna pick that up and you populate into your leaderboard and the leaderboard data structure is automatically populated, right? So even though it's slightly eventually consistent, this is a very scalable way of doing it. In many applications, it's totally fine doing that. There's very few use cases that, you know, may not fit in the scenario. That's a great idea. You know, that is, a great, that, that is also a great example of a materialized view um, on top of an immutable log. Here, I'm also, you know, writing all the data, the Lambda function, there's another Lambda function that's simply taking all the data and persisting that in S3. That's the lower, um, you know, at the very bottom. Um, that, that's your immutable log. So in other words, you want to go back and find out, you know, what happened in this gaming scenario? I didn't persist all this data in the database. All the data that came into your application is persisted durably on S3 that allows you to do, you know, various things like model building, scrubbing what happened in your, in your infrastructure, et cetera, a little bit later. Um, you know, that's what I've indicated as cached views and search view and an immutable log, right? Those are the three things we went through. So, um, which data store should I do, should I use? You know, typically there are four pieces there. Um, what governs the decision is your data structure. You know, are you dealing with fixed schema, JSON, key value? You know, what is your access pattern? You know, storing, one of the things that I've learned over years, you know, either building databases and big data applications is that you eventually store data in the, in the form you eventually access it. You know, that is the essence of all kinds of query processing, index building, and so on, right? That is a very simple truth. Sounds pretty simple, but actually if you, if you use that paradigm, it's really, really helpful, especially at very high scale. If you don't store the data in the form you access it, you don't have time to build your data structures. Oftentimes, customers get into all kinds of trouble because they're materializing a view when the, when the question comes, whereas you should have already built the queue, built the, built the answer in the form, or stored the data in a form that it was prevalently accessed. Plays out everywhere, whether you pick you know, hash keys and range keys in DynamoDB, or uh, sort keys and distribution keys in your data warehouse. Eventually, the essence of all of this big data processing is to store the data in the form that you'll access it. right? Um, and then having an idea of whether you're dealing with hot data, warm data, cold data is right, and the cost always helps you pick the right choice, at least at AWS. Um, here's a simple example of data structure. Um, you know, if it's a fixed data scheme, SQL or NoSQL plays out fairly well. If it's JSON, NoSQL or search plays well. If it's key value, typically putting your data in memory or NoSQL uh, makes a lot of sense. You know, graph databases are getting very popular because you know, the speed of accessing deep networks is going lower and lower, so you need, to have, you need to start to think about materializing a graph view, which is something that I've learned this year. It's getting more and more interesting, more and more customers want, want to deal with graphs. Uh, so I've added that thing. Uh, so basically materializing a graph view of your data 
is becoming more important these days. Uh, similarly, when you look at access patterns, if you have a get put access pattern, you know, having your data in NoSQL or in memory based on how fast you want the data to flow is key. If it's a simple one-to-many or many-to-many relationships, um, you can, NoSQLs will nicely handle that. If you're large scale, you know, you can use NoSQL instead of a classic SQL. You know, where you get into some trouble, you know, still multi-table joins and transactions, you know, SQL, uh, databases do that fairly well. That is one case where you still have to use our good old SQL. Um, and it's a pretty prevalent use case in many cases. If you need that functionality, you have to shard your data across multiple, multiple instances. Um, there's no other way of doing that, um, you know, if you need those kind of joins and transactions. And if you're dealing with faceting and search, if you go into the Amazon website, on the left side we have a pane saying, you know, oh, you know show me all the Prime you know, products that are shipping Amazon Prime. That's called faceting, right? You know, what is the facet where you want to sort? So if you, if you need faceting, basically putting that in a, in a search store such as Cloud Search or Elasticsearch is always the good, you know, right answer. And obviously for graph, you know, multi-level graphs, graph databases work fairly well. Again, this is another concept map. You know, somebody, when they design reviewed my slide, told me this is the ugliest slide that this person has ever seen, right? So last time when I said that in the talk, somebody in the audience said, why do, why do you put that slide if that's the case in <laughs> this talk? The reason I put that slide is that's how I think in my brain, right? And multiple customers, many, many customers have found that extremely helpful. Whenever you're picking, you know, always you're dealing with a spectrum of services in your head, right? When you're actually making a choice, in some cases there's a nice overlap between multiple services, you know, depending upon on the, on the x-axis that I have request rates, cost per gigabyte, latency, data volumes, on the, on the y-axis, I have structure of the data being low or high. So it's sort of a mental map. It's by no means it's accurate, but generally kind of gives you a continuum of services, right? Why did we invent so many pieces? It turns out that we need all that functionality across the spectrum. And in many cases, as a designer, you're trying to figure out what is the right thing for your, for your use case. In some cases, there's more than one scenarios, in which case you have to break the tie. And how do you break the tie? I'm going to give you an example for that. Um, let's hold on for another slide. Uh, which data store should I use? Again, this is a very busy slide. What I've done is taken all my experiences, all my hundreds of design reviews, and then uh, characterized these various data stores across various dimensions. You know, what's the average latency? What's the typical data volume people use for this data store? What's the typical item size? You know, for example, if you take DynamoDB, you know, uh, typically a get inputs returns back in about an average about three to four milliseconds or two milliseconds, you know, somewhere along, along a yeah, single digit millisecond, if you will. Whereas on the left side, if you go to Elastic Cache, if you need microseconds, typically you, need, you should use DAX or Elastic Cache. Um, you know, typically SQL databases return answers in a few milliseconds, in a one or two milliseconds. Uh, and depends on the complexity of the query, and sometimes it can take seconds, if you will. Um, and then at the very bottom, I've given availability characteristics, right? You know, DynamoDB keeps three copies of the data in three different data centers. Uh, when you do a write to Dynamo, it, it's, it synchronously writes to at least two copies in two data centers before it comes back in about three or three milliseconds. So if that kind of durability is important, then pretty much you should pick DynamoDB for your store. And, uh, you know, RDS Aurora is also highly durable. It writes data to three data centers and three AZs. So, so this kind of is a map, again, for you to consult when you're trying to pick your data store. I'm not going to go through every aspect of this. Um, and um, I mean, here's an example. Here's actually an email that somebody sent me, right? Uh, this is a developer on Amazon.com that basically sent me, you know, should I use S3 or Amazon DynamoDB? The person says, I'm currently scoping out a project that design calls for many small files, perhaps up to a billion during peak. 
right? The total size would be in the order of 1.5 terabytes of this data set, right? When I actually poked around, it turns out something like this. A request rate is 300 writes per second, object size is 2K, you know, 1.5 terabytes roughly is how much of the data this person is storing per month, um, and then 777 million objects per month. Now, this is a quiz for you, right? I'm going to stop talking. So how many people think we should use S3? Raise your hands, please. Okay, about 10 hands raised here. Oh, somebody's not sure. It's okay. Or just, you know, it's a fun exercise. How many think it should be DynamoDB? A uh, few more hands raised. Okay, well, let's try this. Are you sure? I can change your mind. Okay, so oftentimes there's the tool called uh, Simple Monthly Calculator. How many of you have seen this tool? It's nicely buried somewhere. Okay, nice. Ni a lot of hands. Awesome. Um, if you plug all this, if you fire that tool up and plug all the parameters, this is the, there's a tab for DynamoDB where you plug in the total data set size, item size, and the writes per second, right? And then there's, again, another tab for S3. You plug in those numbers. These fonts are very small, but assume you're plugging this in, right? I'll show you a bigger font in the next slide. So, and then what happens is it gives a result like this. As you can just see, for the folks who said S3 wins, they were right in some dimension. The storage cost is only $34. But it turns out that the put cost is $3,888, right? Wasn't that a surprise? Yeah. Uh, it turns out when we designed S3, we designed this to do bigger files, you know, and we priced this to do bigger files. You can, you know, S3 will happily take small, you know, small, small payload. You know, object sizes could be one byte to any number of bytes that you want to put in. But it turns out that, you know, put cost may overwhelm you if you're putting very tiny objects. So the best practice with S3 is to aggregate the data to write this to S3. And we priced this product like this. You know, when I was building this slide, in fact, I made a mistake. I used S3 infrequent access. It turns out infrequent access is a lot more expensive than $3,800. It's around $7,000 if I, if I saw that correctly. So actually, do a pricing exercise. Usually, oftentimes, during my design review, after 20 minutes, I park my call and tell my customers, hey, let's just compute the cost of this solution that we're putting through, right? Anytime we write down, two things come out of this. The customer typically gives a two thumbs up, let's go on. Or in some cases, we pick the wrong service and we say, you know what, something is not adding up here or my requirements are totally off, right? I'm going to change this or change the service, right? Uh, now, anytime I do a presentation in front of, you know, hundreds of people, I showed this to the S3 product manager, the person was really upset. <laughs> so, so I decided to put a compensating scenario there. I increased the payload to 32K. And I'll see what happens there, right? Um, it turns out in that case, obviously, S3 wins, right? Uh, it turns out DynamoDB provision throughput and storage cost. DynamoDB uses SSD under the covers. You know, 25 cents per gigabyte per month is the storage cost. Whereas the storage cost of DynamoDB, and then the, when you provision IOPS, you also, each IOP is 1K IOP. You, you, there's a unit price for that. If it's a 32K payload you're writing, it's 32K into 32, right? So the price becomes much higher. So in this case, clearly, you know, pricing the thing gives you the right solution, if you will, right? Um, now, let's quickly, that's a great example of, you know, you should always be cost conscious when you design systems at AWS. Now, let's go into, you know, the analytics stage, right? We've, we've looked at collection, we looked at storage, now we're going to the analytics stage. You know, in terms of predictive analytics, Amazon has been, you know, doing um, a lot of deep investments in AI over the last 20 years. You know, when you go to a website, when you do, you know, people who bought this, bought this too. When we actually tell you, you know, you may want to look at these things, you know, we are basically using AI, uh, machine learning there, right? 
Yeah, when, when we move things in our, in our fulfillment centers, when we move actually, when we move all these boxes around, the routing for that is actually done by you know, machine learning. You know, there's a, a concept in you know, Amazon Go um, is an experience, store buying experience, where you simply walk into the store, pick whatever you want and walk away, we automatically bill you, right? So basically we're doing image processing, we're actually mapping that to your AW, you know, Amazon account and then billing you as well, right? So all of that, you know, we've been at it for about 20 years or so. So we're exposing these services for AWS customers in three forms. You know, API-driven services, you know, these are targeted towards developers. So if you, are, if you want to speech enable, if you want to enable speech recognition, you, see, you can use Amazon Lex, Amazon Poly uh, um, for, for doing text-to-speech. And you, you can also use Amazon recognition, right? If you have, you know, images or clips of videos that you want to actually recognize faces, et cetera, you can actually build that into your big data application. We also have machine learning platforms such as Amazon Machine Learning, um, you know, which is a managed, fully managed service for doing regressions, uh, logistic regressions, you know, sort of classification, if you will, uh, linear regression, and as well as logistic regressions. Uh, Spark ML is very popular. You can run Spark ML on top of EMR, and a lot of customers do, you know, a lot of, you know, both logistic regression um, as well as linear regression, uh, multinomial regression, et cetera, using, using Spark ML. Um, and then we also have shipped a deep learning AMI. Amazon AMI stands for Amazon Machine um, Image. And you can basically run, um, using deep learning AMI, you can run, um, you know, it, it comes bundled with a lot of frameworks such as, you know, MXNet, TensorFlow, um, Cafe, um, Keras, which is a Python framework, you know, for doing high-level programming on top of on top of TensorFlow, etc. Um, it kind of comes in bundled with that. So if you have a data scientist, you can simply launch the deep learning army, run your notebooks there, or you can actually run an auto-scaling group and then run multiple armies with uh, with GPU instances to be able to actually serve predictions uh, at scale. Um, and uh, you know, like obviously, API-driven services are targeted toward developers, and then the other you know, ML platforms as well as the machine learning AMI are directed at data scientists as well as deep learning experts. Um, in terms of interactive and batch analytics, Elasticsearch is a fully managed uh, service for running, uh, for running Elasticsearch. Uh, Redshift, uh, as well as the recently introduced Redshift Spectrum, uh, Redshift is a managed data, data warehouse. Um, Spectrum enables you to access your data in S3. In other words, you don't have to load the data into Redshift. Redshift uses local disks. Uh, whereas Spectrum allows the queries to be actually run um, on a cluster that is dedicated towards running these queries. Uh, so you simply put your data in S3, join a table that's in S3, you create a schema in the Glue catalog, and then Amazon Redshift cluster can simply join a table that's in S3, data for which is in S3, with actually data that's in Amazon Redshift and materialize a query. Um, so these are interactive analytics applications. Athena is also a serverless service for running um, running queries, you don't have to worry about servers. You simply put your data in S3, you know, create your Glue catalog schema, and then you can point your query at, uh, at Athena. You can send your queries to Athena, Athena will materialize a result for you. Uh, Amazon EMR, you can use uh, many managed frameworks such as Spark, Flink, Presto, Tez, et cetera. About 14 frameworks are, are actually supported out of the box. You can pretty much write bootstrap actions to bootstrap any, you know, a large number of big data frameworks on top of EMR. EMR manages like, things like you know, node replacements. EMR also comes with EMR file system, which is a consistent file system on top of S3, et cetera. So you, give, you get a lot of you know, advantages for running EMR. Now, what about streaming and real-time analytics? You know, for streaming, 
using um, Spark streaming on top of EMR makes a lot of sense. You know, Kinesis Analytics um, for Kinesis Analytics is a fully managed service for running SQL on top of streaming data. Um, so you can do things like windowing functions on top of fast-moving data and compute a you know, minute, one-minute metric or a 10-minute metric and actually take that and put it in another Kinesis stream for downstream processing. Uh, KCL is a library for, for stream processing. It manages checkpoints. It allows you to build applications that actually, you know, you can use, use an auto-scaling group and run it across, you know, multiple, multiple AZs. Uh, therefore, you can run Kinesis client library applications using KCL. Uh, Lambda is a fully managed uh, service for running, you know, think of that as running, uh, you know, serverless or running functions in the cloud. You know, Lambda can hook up to either, you know, events that, you, that gets created when you write data to S3, or you can hook up Lambda to, you know, uh, Kinesis streams or DynamoDB streams. So if something, if you write to the stream, automatically the Lambda function gets called, uh, and then it gets handed out a bunch of records, and you can actually do stream, you know, stream processing using Lambda. You don't have to run any servers. Uh, obviously, Lambda runs a lot of servers under the covers, but you simply write your function and hook the function up to a stream, and then process the data there. Um, and uh, which analytics should you use? If you have batch or interactive analytics, you know, in the case of batch, using EMR makes a lot of sense, Elastic MapReduce. Uh, you can use either Hive or Pig or Spark. Uh, if you're doing interactive analytics, which takes typically seconds to process, Amazon Redshift or Athena or EMR with Presto or uh, Spark would make sense. Uh, stream processing, obviously, we have Spark streaming, Kinesis Analytics, KCL, and Lambda. For predictive analytics, basically doing either real-time predictions or batch predictions using either Amazon Machine Learning, or you can use, if you're API-driven services, if you're dealing with uh, you know, images, et cetera, you can use actually recognition to, to actually recognize various objects and images uh, in your pipeline. Actually, I'll show you a demonstrate how to use that a little bit later. Um, here is, again, a comparison of various stream processing technologies. Um, and um, you know, one thing to note here is that if you're doing Spark streaming, um, it is, how many of you know that it's a single AZ service, right? When you're running an EMR cluster or, or, a, or, an, or a Hadoop cluster, typically it runs in a single AZ. So if, if, you want, if you're running a highly available application, then you need to have a mechanism to launch another cluster if an AZ availability team zone goes down. Whenever we build services at AWS or our solutions at AWS, we always tell customers to build highly available solutions, which means you should plan on multi-AZ if in case a, data, a node fails or AZ fails, right? Uh, so in the case of Kinesis KCL, uh, if you're using auto-scaling and putting in and running the application across multiple ACs, it, it is inherently multi-AZ. Whereas if you use Kinesis Analytics and Lambda, it is inherently multi-AZ, right? Even if an availability zone goes down, you know, we automatically compensate for that. The application is running as if nothing happened, right? Uh, so those are some of the points. Again, I'm gonna leave this as a slide for you for future reference. Um, again, uh, this is uh, um, that what analytics tool should you use, right? You know, if you're using a data warehouse, if you have a classic data warehouse kind of workload, I think the best tool to use would be Amazon Redshift. Uh, if you want to combine direct data warehousing with, with the data lake scenario where you're putting files in S3 and you're doing joins across, using Amazon Spectrum makes a lot of sense. And if you're doing basically, if you're putting all the files in simply S3 and you want to create a catalog on top of that, uh, a glue catalog on top of that, and you don't want to provision servers, et cetera, using Amazon Athena makes a lot of sense because simply you create a catalog on top of that and access the data. And obviously with EMR, you have Presto, Spark, and Hive are some of the options as well. 
Um, again, there's a lot of, you know, Athena is serverless, whereas the others, you have to think about servers provisioning the right instance types, et cetera. Um, and um, moving on to ETL, um, AWS Glue is a fully managed service for, for ETL. Um, it allows you to not only do ETL, but also, you know, you can provide various data sources. It will automatically look at the various data sources and actually infer what the data is and create a catalog for your data in the Glue catalog. And the catalog is accessed by Spectrum, Athena, and other services, you know, and you can even EMR, and therefore you can actually join with that data automatically being materialized uh, by Glue. Uh, it also creates you a boilerplate cloud, which you can optimize, and when you finish the ETL process, it automatically runs that ETL jobs on top of clusters, Spark clusters that it creates. So it's a, it's a fantastic developer-oriented platform for running these workloads. You know, if you, you also can use this, a plethora of other, uh, you know, tools such as, you know, Informatica or uh, Attenuity and others. Um, they do fairly amazing things as well, so you can use those platforms as well. Um, and um, now, uh, putting this somewhat all together, we're very close. Uh, in terms of the consume, um, I'm focusing a little bit on the AI. Uh, if you're building AI applications, obviously you can use... Um, the Amazon AI to build your models, and you can deploy those models on top of a ECS cluster, um, and uh, then actually you can train those models as well, and using the deep learning AMI and and um, and your Jupyter notebooks, etc. And um, if you're doing classic, you know, visualization, uh, classic analytics, if you will, uh, visualization, you can use QuickSight, Tableau, etc., Looker, MicroStrategy, and others. Uh, I didn't have the space in the slide to include a lot of, and there's a lot of amazing partner services. I'm not focusing on those specific aspects that, you know, I think probably this one gives you an idea of what else you can use as well. Now, um, the BI applications, you know, AI applications are, and the data science notebooks, et cetera, are more data science and DevOps specific. And, the, and whereas the business users typically use things like uh, Tableau and others to point and QuickSight to point and, and slice and dice their data. Now, that is the grand uh, slide that actually combines all of that. Um, obviously, it's going to be in your, um, it's, going to be sh it's, it's going to show up in SlideShare as well. Uh, now, let's go through quickly three design patterns. This is another concept map of, um, of, uh, of putting all this stuff together. Uh, you know, uh, going back here, uh, what I've done here is that, you know, your data goes into three different data stores, potentially in this case, you know, HOTS data source such as Kinesis, and a hot and a warm data source such as DynamoDB and a, and, a, and, and, a, and a warm and a colder scenario such as S3, right? And then you can use various processing technologies based on what processing technology that you use, right? If you're actually doing Spark streaming on top of Kinesis, it's really a real-time application. If you're putting data in S3 and then you're actually copying it to Redshift and are running queries through Athena, which answer is going to come back in seconds, it's actually interactive analytics, right? Um, and then you can do classic batch processing using either Hive or Test, right? So generally, you know, sort of this gives me sort of a mental map of combining hot data stores with processing technologies that can either run fast or slow. Combination of that gives you, you know, three different types of analytics, if you will. Now, um, now this is where it all comes together in the next three slides. Uh, thanks for holding on. Um, and. Um, you know, if you're, if you're building a real-time application, the general architecture is like this. You know, you take your streaming data and you put that in Amazon Kinesis, right? And you can run Amazon Kinesis Analytics to do stream ETL. In other words, you, run, you write SQL and you do your group bias and, and so on, and you put the results of that into another Kinesis stream or Kinesis Firehose um, for further downstream processing. 
Um, and in order to analyze the data in Kinesis, you're going to either use a Kinesis client library app or you're going to use AWS Lambda or Spark. We've compared and contrasted these things you know, based on your needs. You pick one of those, right? Um, and then if you do real-time predictions, let's say if you have fast-moving data, your you know, temperature gauge is sending measurements, and you want to consult your machine learning model on the fly to figure out whether you know, this instrument is going to have a problem or this turbine is going to have a problem, and dispatch people, so you do real-time you know, analytics by looking up your model and saying, do you see any patterns here? I'm getting these readings. And then if that is the case, you send an alert to SNS, and then it notifies the appropriate person or people. Um, and then you can also use a persistent, you can write a simple Lambda function. All it takes is takes the data and writes it to S3 so you have a persistent copy of your data uh, for, for further processing. And this is another important layer, right? Any, anytime you're dealing with, this is about decoupling, right? If you have downstream applications painting pretty pictures, usually they like to look at a database or Elasticsearch or something like that to draw pictures. You know, Kibana nicely works with Elasticsearch. So you need to nicely introduce a decoupling layer, which is that blue, that has elastic, you know, elastic cache, Amazon DynamoDB, and RDS that nicely decouples this processing layer, that stream processing, and making it ready for the downstream application to use, right? Um, and then again, in some cases, what happens is you want to fan out, right? You have you know, 20 customers, and typically if you write to Kinesis Stream, there's one producer and two consumers. That's what each chart, so you need to scale the shots. In some cases, you want to take the data and put it in three or four Kinesis Streams for other downstream downstream customers to you. That's the way you scale out Kinesis, if you will, in, in addition to scaling out the various shards. Um, in some cases, you want to give special purpose data to a specific team, right? A team doing A-B testing on a clickstream data only wants a subset of the data, so you want to maybe pipe off that you know, to a downstream. It, pretty much every single you know, real-time analytics application is based on a framework like this, right? So if you know what this is, pretty much you can solve any real-time analytics problem. Similarly, interactive analytics. Um, so you can use, um, you know, you can put your data in, you know, Kinesis Firehose and then transport the data to Elasticsearch or Redshift. Uh, you can put your data into files and then have, you know, Amazon EMR or Athena process that and consume it. Or you can run your classic, you know, high or pig on top of the S3 data. Now that is interactive on batch analytics. Now putting this together, you can also introduce um, you know, either real-time or prediction by doing batch prediction using Amazon Machine Learning or real-time predictions as well into your pipeline. And, um, and, and that can be incorporated into the answers that you give to the customers, right? Um, now, putting, what is a data lake? You know, data lake to me is a combination of interactive and batch analytics and real-time and with a materialized view, if you will, right? So if you, if you take all of that that we did before and put that in place, that is in essence your data lake. So to me, a data lake is a design pattern that allows you to kind of bring together both your interactive uh, real-time or stream analytics and the materialized view to materialize the data in a, in a form your downstream applications would need it. And we walk through the end-to-end -end stage as to how to do that. Now, a um, couple of things are important. You know, giving metadata, keeping an idea of the metadata in your applications is also important. You know, storing that metadata in a glue catalog or a classic hive catalog makes a lot of sense. Um, and then... Last but not the least, security and governance is important. You know, encrypting your data using appropriate keys, you know, using the appropriate services for authentication and access control, such as directory services and Apache Ranger, uh, is pretty helpful. Um, and uh, using CloudWatch, you know, logs and you know is pretty important end to end. So you're going to use some of the you know compliance tools. Putting it all together, this is the the grand picture. 
of your data lake reference architecture. And um, with that, um, I am going to summarize, um, you know, build, when you build big data systems, you know, build decoupled data pipelines, use the right tool for the job. We, we went through how and use log-centric design patterns and materialized views for scaling you know, your, your applications. Be always cost-conscious. That enables you to the right decision and use you know, AI and ML enable your applications. Thank you so much for hanging out till the end. I hope that was helpful.